remember snow, right? <laughs> During the last snowstorm, which was March 3rd, March 4th, am I okay here? Whoa, don't want to blow myself off. Is that good? Okay. So that last snowstorm, which seems so long ago, March 3rd, when uh, when we know snowstorms coming and we're going to be in the house for a while, we like to do jigsaw puzzles. So we got one out, a 500-piece jigsaw puzzle to work on during the storm. Susan did most of it uh, and got it done um, before the storm was over. At least that is 499 pieces. <laughs> Yeah, one uh, one missing piece we could not find anywhere. You know, we looked under the couch, under the tables. We looked in the couch. It just it was never to be found. Well, today we're going to meet a fellow named Apollos. He was a contemporary of Paul's. In fact, he's one of the most likely candidates as the anonymous author of the book of Hebrews in the New Testament. But when we're first introduced to Apollos, there is one missing piece in his theology. We're going to help him find it. So we're reading this morning from Acts 18, starting with verse 24, page 985 in your pew Bibles, and whatever Bible app you might be using on your phones, that's where it is. Acts 18, 24. The word of the Lord. Now, a Jew named Apollos, a native Alexandrian, an eloquent man who was competent in the use of the scriptures, arrived in Ephesus. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he was speaking and teaching accurately about Jesus, although... He only knew John's baptism. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue. After Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained the way of God to him more accurately. When he wanted to cross over to Achaia, that's modern-day Greece, the brothers and sisters wrote to the disciples over in Greece to welcome him. After he arrived, he was a great help to those who by grace had believed. For he vigorously refuted the Jews in public, demonstrating through the scriptures that Jesus is the Messiah. The word of the Lord. So let's look first at what Apollos did know. 
And before we explore that, we need to consider what we know about him, which isn't a whole lot. He just, he appears in this part of the scriptures and then just sort of leaves the book of Acts. He does show up in Corinth later on, um, but we don't hear anything from him. We just know he was there. So he's from Alexandria. Now, for many centuries, there had been a significant Jewish presence in the famous Egyptian city of Alexandria, which was only Egyptian because of where it was located. So right down there, see that little red dot right above that little red just the very edge of Egypt. Alexander the Great was the one who ordered the city of Alexandria, hence the name, built around 300 years before Christ. But Alexander, as great as he was, never got to see his namesake city. So It was a thoroughly Greek city from the start, not an Egyptian one. And by the first century, Alexandria was easily the most, one of the most prominent and prosperous cities in all of the Roman Empire. The population of about a half a million people, which was second only to Rome itself. Now, first century writers estimated that the Jewish population of Alexandria in the first century was as high as 40% Jewish. I mean, that's way more than were in Judah or Israel at the time. This is the famous Pharaoh's lighthouse for which Alexandria was well known. Now, most all of those Jews in Alexandria were what we call Hellenized, meaning that while ethnically and religiously they were Jewish, culturally they were Greek. They spoke Greek. They thought Greek. They read Greek works. They did Greek things. Now, in addition to the lighthouse of Alexandria, that city boasted the most famous and foremost library in the world. It was part of that complex that housed the lighthouse. And this library, again, contemporary writers, not in the Bible, but who had been to Alexandria and wrote about it, estimated that between 400,000 and 700,000 scrolls in countless languages were in that library. At least one copy of every book known to exist at the time. Alexandria was a great seaport and from all over the world, whenever ships would come into Alexandria to offload goods or to pick up goods, the soldiers would go into the ship and confiscate any scrolls that they might have had take them into the library, copy them, and then give the originals or the copies back to the ship. So you couldn't go to Alexandria without contributing to the library. 
So in the first century, if you were an intellectual and you wanted to study or research anything at all, Alexandria is the place to go. Now, Apollos grew up there. And he is not only himself an excellent scholar, he's also trained in public speaking, what the Romans called rhetoric. Apollos is a master teacher, charismatic in his delivery. It's like Gary and Pastor Tom logically irrefutable in his reasoning powers, utterly convincing in his arguments. Now, we don't know why Apollos travels across the Mediterranean to Ephesus in about 52 AD. We don't even know if he took a boat, but that's how far he had to go. We're not sure why he went to Ephesus. But he arrives in that city shortly after Paul had left to return to his home base of Antioch. So learned Jew that he is, upon arriving in Ephesus, he heads straight to one of the many synagogues scattered throughout this sprawling metropolis of Ephesus. It was as big as Alexandria in terms of population. And Apollos is invited, as is customary in the Jewish world, to speak to the gathered congregation. Traveling Jews, go to the synagogue. What do you have to say, brothers? What have you been hearing? What have you learned? So it just so happens, one of those glorious divine coincidences, it just so happens that the husband and wife dynamic duo of Priscilla and Aquila are in that particular synagogue on that particular Sabbath. And this is the couple you will remember from Pastor Tom's message last week. They had met Paul in Corinth when Paul was in Corinth and then worked with Paul for a year and a half there sharing the gospel and nurturing, birthing and nurturing a brand new church. Well, Priscilla and Aquila are now in Ephesus, carrying on the work of the gospel there in Paul's stead. Luke tells us, Apollos had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he was speaking and teaching accurately about Jesus in the synagogue. But he only knew about the baptism of John. Now, Apollos knows his Old Testament. Remember, this is all any Jew knows. There's no New Testament. If you want to find out about Jesus, you can't look up the Gospels. They don't exist. The Old Testament is the only source of information about Jesus. So, exclusively from the Old Testament, which is a book we hardly ever read, except maybe the Psalms and a few happy passages we know about. But 
exclusively from just the Old Testament. Aquila and Priscilla hear Apollos preaching and teaching accurately about Jesus. Now, when Paul goes to synagogue, what does he use to preach and teach accurately about Jesus? The Old Testament! That's it! That's all the early church has to work with. Well, remember that Jesus said to his disciples, this is after he was raised from the dead. In fact, the day he was raised from the dead, to be precise. He said to his disciples, this is what I told you while I was still with you. And man, would I love to launch launch on a sermon about that. While I was still with you, everything, Jesus now, must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. That is the entirety of the Jewish Old Testament. They had a different way of chunking it up than we do. That's it. Everything written about me. And then he opened their minds so they could understand the Old Testament scriptures. So, Apollos is teaching exactly what Jesus was teaching his own disciples about himself from the Old Testament. Yet, Luke tells us, Apollos knew only John's baptism. Now, if you read John the Baptizer and the gist of his sermons, which are recorded for us in the Gospels, which nobody had available at the time, John brought nothing new to the Old Testament. Nothing. He preached exactly the same message that every single one of the Old Testament prophets had preached, which was essentially, repent today, right now, before the judgment of God falls upon you, because it's coming, and you better be ready. Except there was one thing that John added, if you will. John the baptizer personally identified Jesus of Nazareth as the one long promised and long prophesied Old Testament Messiah. John identified Jesus as the Lamb of God who, as Paul would write to the Corinthians, would die for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. That's what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15. 
that Christ would die for our sins in keeping with the scriptures. And Apollos knows that that was Jesus. Because John had identified him. So Apollos knows that in fact Jesus had died for our sins in keeping with the scriptures because that's what the Messiah would do. So, and don't just try not to answer this question out loud yet. I know this is going to be really hard for some of you. What is Apollos missing? What's that missing piece? Susan recently picked up uh, a book for entertaining grandchildren on rainy days. Now, you may have seen these or remember them from your childhood. Now, you know how this works, and I'm trying to figure out. They look identical, but there's something missing in one of those pictures that is not in the other. Oh, I see it. Anybody see it? <laughs> I don't know what it is, but it's over there on the tail of the the horsey, at least. I don't know. I'm probably missing more. Oh, clouds. Oh, guys, you guys are good. So very good. You know how to play this game. They look identical initially, right? But they're not quite the same. One of them is missing a detail or an object that the other one isn't missing. And you've got to find and identify that. So we know what Apollos did know, which is the entirety of the Old Testament. What did he not know? What piece was he missing? And there can be only one answer to that question. Now you can say it. What's he missing? Something happens before the Holy Spirit. The resurrection. The Holy Spirit cannot be given without the Messiah being raised from the dead. So to appreciate why that one missing piece was so essential for a brilliant Jewish scholar such as Apollos, this graph will help us. And now... I'm not sure how clearly you... Well, that's, that's pretty good. Now, I, I just found out this morning that this pointer won't work on the screen, but... Okay. So... Eschatology... Very... Scholars, biblical scholars, love to use fancy words that nobody else gets, right? Eschatology simply means the study of the end. Or the eschaton, which is the Greek word for the end. Now the Jews, the top graph, this one up here, pay no attention to that man behind the curtain down here. This was the Jewish understanding of the end. Now we're all interested in the end, right? It's like 
The only thing we talk about sometimes. And the Jews were all over this topic, just like Christians tend to be all over it. And every Jew, educated or not, believed that the world would end in one single, climactic, global, catastrophic event in which God himself, through his Messiah, would step into history, judge the world, judge the wicked, and rescue his people. Now, we'll come back to that, but keep in mind... For the Jews, it all happens at the same time. And then it's over. Now, there's several passages in the Old Testament that speak to this. Daniel 12 is probably the simplest and clearest. Daniel writes that near the end of his book, There will be a time of distress such as has never occurred since nations came into being until that time. But at that time, all your people, this is God speaking through the prophet, all your people who are found written in the book, the book of life, of course, will escape. Many who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake. Some to eternal life. And some to disgrace and eternal contempt. So the end of the world in the Jewish mind would be marked by the resurrection of every soul from the dead to stand before God. The end of the world. All the dead will rise. Now, we're not going to need ABC or Fox to let us know when that happens, right? I think it'll be pretty obvious. But there was never a notion anywhere in any Jewish mind except Jesus's of God's people in the end going to heaven. The Jews just didn't think that way. You die, you go to heaven. In fact, it was the opposite. The Jewish eschaton, the Jewish end of the world has heaven coming down to earth. Is this not what Jesus himself believed? And he taught us to pray about the Jewish eschaton, if you will. Your kingdom, Jesus prayed and taught us to pray. Your kingdom, come here. We're not to pray that we go there, but that there comes here. Your will be done here on earth as it is in heaven. God's 
kingdom, his domain, his heaven. Every time you pray the Lord's Prayer, you're praying for that to come here on this planet. But Apollos can see that as completely as Jesus fulfilled all those Old Testament scriptures, that kingdom is not here. Last time they all checked, Rome was still acting like Rome. If anything, arguably the wicked were more evil than ever. That eternal, everlasting age of God's justice and God's peace and God's righteousness on the earth There was nowhere to be found then. I don't see it happening now. But when Priscilla and Aquila explained to Apollos that the Jesus whom John the baptizer identified as Messiah and about whom Apollos was teaching accurately, when they explained to him that that Jesus, the Messiah, the Lamb of God, was raised from the dead. That missing piece in Apollos' eschatology falls perfectly, succinctly, and gloriously into place. Now, back to our... Now, you can look down at the bottom here. This... Now remember, okay, all the Jews believed up here. This little guy. This line. That the end of the world would be marked by one event, namely the resurrection of the dead. Book of Revelation, John the Apostle says Jesus is the firstborn from the dead. So, God entered into history and time with that singular event that marks the end of history and the end of time. God cheated so that now this everlasting age, excuse me, the one on top, the eternal age, the age of justice and righteousness and peace here on this earth has already started in the resurrection of Jesus. While the old age continues when the bad guys Still, when our nature of sinfulness keeps rearing its head, when we are so much less than we think 
we're supposed to be. That's still going on. We're in it. But God has intervened in history with something that wasn't supposed to happen until the end. Meaning, the end has started. And so when Pentecost, when Peter quotes the Old Testament, what you're seeing now with the Holy Spirit being poured out on God's people, this is the last days. 2,000 years ago. So this resurrection of one man, the firstborn, Jesus, the designated Messiah, can only mean that what is to be in that eternal age, namely, forgiveness, Rescue, salvation of God's people, God's long-delayed justice and judgment upon the wicked, and the coming of his rule on earth as fully and as completely as he rules and reigns gloriously in heaven, that has started here. We call this the already not yet. Already slash not yet. And this can be something of a missing piece for believers even today. Pastor Tim Heller, Keller, excuse me, who went home to Christ just this weekend, says this far more simply and succinctly than I can. So let him speak for us. This is the clearest statement that I've ever come across of this tension, the already not yet. God's kingdom, Keller writes, is present in its beginnings, but still future in its fullness. This guards us Christians against an underrealized eschatology, okay? an underappreciated sense of the end, meaning that we we don't expect any change now. It's like we just gotta hang on, right? We all talk this way sometimes. Just hang on. No, we don't need to hang on. The kingdom has come in Christ, and we don't want to be faulty. In our understanding of that. So the already not yet protects us against that. But also in over-realized eschatology. Expecting all change to happen now. How many of you Christians thought that when you accepted Christ, you were going to change completely? We all fell for it. It's part of the marketing of the church. Come to Christ and be changed, we tell people. Rightly so, but we don't warn them that that's not going to happen when you wake up in the morning. So Keller goes on. In this stage where we are in between Christ's coming to save us and is coming back. 
It's been 2,000 years so far. Most people have a hunch that, you know, maybe we'll get another 5, 10 years. Well, that's happened a million times in history. We could have another two, four, six thousand years. Nobody knows. But as long as that time endures from when Jesus first came 2,000 years ago to whenever he comes back, we embrace the reality, the truth, the hope, the confidence that while we are not yet what we will be, thank God. God for that. We also are no longer what we used to be. And this, my friends, is the essence of our biblical faith. What God has begun in history and in time with the coming of of Jesus Christ. He will complete. Also in history. Also in time. With the coming of Christ. With his return. To finish what he started. We'll close with this. Be assured. Friends. Our status as citizens of the kingdom of God, citizens of another government, our status as citizens fully, completely, irrevocably, already redeemed, already forgiven, already made righteous before God. Already holy in his sight, reconciled to him and to one another, adopted as sons and daughters in his family, upon whom the very Spirit of God himself has been poured out without reservation or measure. Our citizen status is secure. Not because we hope it is, but because of that one missing piece in Apollos' eschatology, which is no longer missing for him, no longer missing for any of us, the resurrection of Jesus Christ of Nazareth from the dead seals our fate as citizens of the kingdom of God. It's locked in. You don't have to renew that passport all the time. We have our papers signed and sealed with the blood of Jesus and validated by the Father in raising him from the dead. The firstborn from the dead. Many, many, many more to follow. Oh, good news indeed.